I want to say I'm thankful to be here this morning, um, but I didn't have a lot of time to put together some things on my, thought, on my, on my heart this morning. So we're going to go with, we're still in Bible engagement, which is great, but I want to uh, just pause for a moment first off and said Pastor Jeff was very disappointed that him and his wife could not come out with his sons. Um, and we have been working on an alternative that hopefully, Lord willing, he'll be here next Sunday. Uh, and he'll take another Bible engagement topic as we talk about the cross and the significance of the cross. Um, yeah, there's a reason why I think, and you'll hear it this morning, why coming into this message I thought, um, I'm glad he's doing this one and not me, and I'll explain it to you as we get a little bit into it, okay? Um, someone told me once, many years ago, the most effective messages you'll ever speak or preach as a pastor are the ones lived through the speaker. Anybody can take something that's on a page and talk about it. You know what I mean? God doesn't want us to just explain scripture to people. He wants us to emulate it. He wants us to embody it. He wants you and I to not just look at words on a page, read, commit to our, heart, to our heads, and then go about our days. He wants it to transform us. So... Hold that thought as we get a little bit further down. Uh, We are changing gears this morning in Bible engagement. We are in a new uh, volume. If you've been with us, you know that Bible engagement's been going on since October. Uh, We have the month of April, May, and June, and then we have done 10 months going through the Word with 10 key scriptures. We have gone through many scriptures at this point. We had six different volumes that we have gone through at this point. We started with volume one, and it was Psalm 119.11 that said, I have hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. That was Psalm 119.11. Some of you remember that. Then volume two, we did 1 Thessalonians 5.24, and it said, God will make this happen, for he who calls you is faithful. Right? That was the smallest of all the verses that we've had so far over the last six months that we've gone through this. And if you're not sure where they've been hanging up, they're actually on that big etch-a-sketch in the back wall. Then we went to John 14, 6, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is a scripture that is very contentious in our culture today because many times people say the Bible is exclusive. And it is in one way, but it's also completely inclusive in another. Because Jesus is not a respecter of persons. It's an invitation that applies to everyone, regardless of your race, color, creed, past history, whatever you thought you've done, whatever you've done. The invitation applies to everyone. It is not exclusive, it is not exclusive in that sense, but he is the way. Volume 4, we went to Isaiah 41.10, one of my favorite scriptures, where he says, Do not be afraid, or don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged, he says, for I am with you. I am your God. I will strengthen you, he said, and help you. And then he says, I will hold you up or uphold you with my righteous or victorious right hand. Isaiah 41.10. Then we shifted to volume 3, and we went to Psalm 37.23. The Lord directs the steps of the godly. He delights in every detail of their lives. Maybe you heard me talk about that scripture in the past. I love the fact that that scripture is very specific, that he delights or directs the steps of the godly, that we can write our plans down in pen or pencil. 
You can write it in white eraser mark or whiteboard. It doesn't matter what you put it down. Ultimately, when our hearts are committed to God, he is the one that directs our steps. But then the scripture said he delights in every detail of our lives. And I think that's something that people don't understand about God this day and age. He cares about the details. He cares about the details. And that doesn't mean this morning he cares about whether you had Raisin Bran or Captain Crunch. Okay, maybe if your situation is such that you need him to answer in that way, he could care. But we could tell you testimony after testimony over the years of how there is nothing too insignificant for God. Because if he's really our father, how many of us as parents don't have any issue with our kids coming to us with the big things or even with the really little small things. What it says is their reliance upon someone else and what it says is the relationship is what the priority is. So that was Psalm 37, 23. And then we just wrapped up volume five, Matthew five sixteen. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly father. I kicked that one off the beginning of March when I talked about Psalm, I'm sorry, Matthew five sixteen, And we talked specifically about David and Goliath. Remember, walking in a relationship with God is not about trying to understand why every circumstance happens the way that it does. We don't need to know, nor God doesn't really plan out to show us why everything happens in the world the way that it is. And it's not the objective of us to look at every circumstance in our life and say, though it doesn't make sense to me now, I know one day it will become clear why this tragedy happened to me. That's not even a valid way of looking at God. Sometimes there are answers But the more important thing we have to remember is in the midst of our circumstances, struggles, trials, life experiences, God will use it for his glory. He uses everything for his glory. Sometimes he introduces things into our lives because he's making us more like his son. Sometimes the situation around us is just junky struggle. It's garbage. Bad things happen. But you know what? If we submit ourselves to him, we recognize that our good deeds can still shine before the father. Why? So that others will praise him. Giving God the glory is what he wants in my life, in your life, in everyone's life who calls Jesus Lord. He's not looking to show us things just because one day, if we're faithful, there will be a magic answer at the end of the journey. Sometimes we're fortunate enough to see it, but generally speaking, he wants us to be submitted to him so that in everything, and I really do believe, I said this before a couple weeks ago, I'm camping on this one because this so stirred me when I spoke about it a month ago. We live in a microwave society, church. Don't you agree? Everything has to have an immediate answer. I mean, I order stuff online today, and when the delivery is, is tomorrow and it doesn't come till Tuesday, I get upset. You know what I'm talking about? It said Monday. Why do I have to wait another 24 hours? Well, and the answer would be, well, because we kind of shipped it a thousand miles from your house and it went through four different packaging services and distribution. And that's why it's 24 hours late. Nuts. I'm ridiculous. Am I right? Think about this, right? Think about when I was a kid, okay, this didn't exist. If it did, it would have been the size of the keyboard. Okay. This, this cell phone. When I wanted to know what something was when I was a kid, when I wanted to know the answer to something, oh, my parents were brilliant. Three words all the time. Look it up. That's right. How do you spell this? Look it up. 
What does this mean? Look it up. Now, it doesn't mean if they didn't know, because when I got older, I kind of felt maybe, maybe they didn't know and they just wanted me to figure it out. And maybe there were some times that that happened, but there was also an intentionality around it, teaching us, teaching us to go through difficult times and recognizing when we struggle sometimes, there is benefit. Same thing applies to us spiritually. When we struggle through things at times in our lives, when we understand that there are difficult things we have to deal with, we go to God, we give him the glory, he becomes glorified, he brings us along the journey and makes us look more like Jesus. You with me? So important to understand that. So important. And there is joy in the process, but I'm not going to continue that thought. This morning we are on a new volume. We are looking at volume 8. We are looking at session 1, and the passage is John 13, 1 through 17. John 13, 1 through 17. And we have a new faith verse from the New Living Translation, Romans 5, verse 8. And it says, But God showed his great love for us, by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. You can gloss over scripture sometimes. I know I have done this many times. I read something, especially when you get the Bible verse of the day on your email or whatever. Yeah, 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 that's good. Let's just meditate on this just for a few brief moments. But God showed his what love? His great love for us. How did he, send, how did he show us great love? By sending Christ to what? Die for us when? While we were still sinners. Eugene Peterson's version of the Bible he wrote called The Message says in this, while we were of no use to him whatsoever. I love the version of that in the paraphrase he says because he points out something that's significant. Sin has no value to God. And when we walk in sin, We create the separation. And because we are in sin, we are helpless to solve it on our own. But God showed his great love for you and for me. How? By sending Christ, his son, to die for us, which is what we're going to celebrate on Good Friday, to die for us while we were of no value because of our sin. And yet God saw great value in us. Isn't that amazing? He sees value in us when the world sees no value. And we don't live in a world where people ascribe value to people based on them as an individual. The world ascribes value to people based on what they can deliver. That's why babies, little babies, even the testimony that was given this morning by Lydia, a baby in a womb has very little value. So why do we have to keep the baby? And we could talk about that another time. Or when you're a little, little child and you're born, how much value is in there? They need all the care they can possibly need or possibly demand, right? Babies don't ask, what have you done for me? Babies ask, what have you done for me right now? And then in five minutes, they ask, what have you done for me right now? And it can be exhausting. Any parents here that have had children over the years and go, when they were young, man, they were walk- I was a walking zombie. Anyone know what I'm talking about this morning? Right? You know, I've learned things from certain people over the years, you know. I mean, I had selective hearing when our kids were really, really little. Like, I thought I heard in my dreams that they were crying, but I guess they weren't because when I woke up, it was quiet. My wife wasn't in the bed anymore, but I don't know what happened. It just happened. But God just spoke to me during that time. Value in this society is linked to our performance. Our performance has nothing to do with the value that God places on us today. He values us because he made us in his image. 
He valued us because he created us to know him and to be in relationship with him. And sin has destroyed that. But in his great love for us, he sent Christ to die for us while we were still valueless by the world's standards. He still loved us. Isn't that powerful? He saw value not because of what we could or couldn't do, but because of who we were made in the image of. And that's worthwhile. And that will transform the the way you live because if you walk through your life thinking you're less than because you're comparing yourself to any other situation where you grew up, how much money you had, what kind of family situation you had, whether you went to a great school, no school, whether anything you compare yourself, can I tell you, God sees you the same way he sees the person sitting next to you as someone who was worth dying for. Remember that. That's why this verse and why it's so important for us to reflect on these faith verses. This morning, as we reflect on that faith verse, we're going to dig a little bit into John chapter 13, 1 through 17. And I want to ask you a few brief questions this morning. And the questions, you don't have to write down, but I want you to think about it in your mind. The question is this. When you think of Jesus, what images come to mind that describe him? When you think of Jesus, what images come to mind that describe him to you? There may be many. But maybe here are some of the ones that that come to mind to you. The first one may be this. You think of Jesus, maybe you think of this. No, that's not the first one. That's the first one. The king. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords, right? Maybe that's what you see him as. Maybe when you think of Jesus, you think he's the almighty king. We sing songs like king of kings. Maybe he's the king to you. The next one, maybe you see Jesus like this. Maybe he's a teacher, He was a rabbi. Scriptures say very clearly in the Gospels, they called him rabbi. He was a teacher. That's not Jesus, by the way. That's an actor. But maybe that's how you see him, as one who instructed and has he taught. Maybe you see him as this one. Maybe he's a healer. This is a depiction of the the, the man at the Pool of Siloam and how he he was paralyzed all his life and couldn't get into the waters, and yet Jesus brings him up and tells him to stand and heals him miraculously. Is Jesus a healer to you? Is that the image you have of Jesus? Maybe the next one is what you, you have. And, and if you can't figure out what that is, that's him walking through the temple being really angry because they turned God's house of worship into a den of thieves where they profited and he was tossing the temple tables, right? Some people that you know use this as a reason to be real buttheads to other people in Jesus' name. They go, well, Jesus was angry and he flipped temple tables, so why can't I? I go, well, there's a little bit more to the story as to why that happened, but maybe this is the thing you see. Why? Because he said and he quoted scripture, zeal consumed him for his father's house because God did not create a house of worship to make profit off of, but to bring hope to people. Of course, this time of year that we're in, maybe this is the image you see of Jesus. In your mind, maybe he's a savior to you and he's on that cross And he's giving his life for you and for me. All of those are accurate pictures. And there are so many more that we could put in play today. So many more we could talk about. I want to stop and camp on this one that is in John 13. And it's this. Jesus is a servant. Before he's a healer. Before he's a teacher. Before zeal consumed him for his father house. Before he was a savior. He was a servant. Because he did the Father's will. And he walked with, an out, with, with a mindset of love to all of those that were around him. In the Gospel of John, I think this is really important for us to understand. Gospel of John, in the 20 chapters that we see in the Gospel of John. John devotes the first, I'm sorry, the first 12 chapters of John 
he devotes to the three years of Jesus' life while he did ministry in this earth. The first 12 chapters cover three years of Jesus' life when he began his public ministry. The next six chapters of the 20 cover one day. Think about that. 12 chapters for three years, six chapters for one day. Why is there such a significant move here? Because he's making the shift to not just talk about what Jesus did, but he's starting to unpack the truth of what the purpose of his mission was and how really what it comes down to is not that he was just a teacher, not that he's the savior, not that he um, was zealous for the house of God, but he came as a servant. And what does servanthood look like? That's what the next six chapters really break out. If we look at it from the perspective of servanthood motivated from the love of the Father. So, with one day left before his arrest, Jesus presents his disciples with a lesson that will change the way his disciples will live for the rest of their lives. And here's what I think is important for you and I to remember this morning this is not a lesson that died 2,000 years ago, church. This is a lesson that applies to us today. Knowing at this point in this passage, when we pick it up in John 13, this is less than 24 hours from the time that Jesus will be arrested, tried, crucified. And this is the lesson he teaches his disciples and how they should live in response to how he has lived for them. Verse 1, John 13. We're going to read 1 through 17. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that this hour had come to leave this world and return to the Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. It was the time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, some of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't understand now what I'm doing, but someday you will. No, Peter protested, you will never, ever wash my feet. Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. Simon Peter exclaimed, then wash my hands and my head as well, Lord, but not just my feet. Verse 10, Jesus replied, A person who is bathed all over does not need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. And you disciples are clean, but not all of you, for Jesus knew who would betray him. That is when he meant, that is what he meant when he said, Not all of you are clean. Verse 12, after Jesus, after washing their feet, he put on his robe again, sat down, and asked, Do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. God, as we look into your word this morning and we just touch on this truth, May it be planted deep in our hearts and may we see you more clearly. Not so that we're just checking boxes or reading some message in a page, in a book, but your words get planted deep in our hearts. May they touch and change who we are today. In your name we pray. Amen. Serving like Jesus, serving like Jesus, which is the message 
of, today's ti- of, of the title of today's message, Serve Like Jesus, can be a trendy idea. Lead like Jesus. There are books that are written like this, guys. Lead like Jesus. Serve like Jesus. Love like Jesus. And it can sound a little trendy after a while. You know, This is the, what we're supposed to do. But, but if you're like me, what you know is just because something sounds good on paper doesn't mean that it actually makes it to my life. Just because something sounds good in theory doesn't mean that it comes to me in practice and actually happens, right? I mean, I see all the videos on um, social media about people that say, you know, you can look this awesome and you can have this body type and you can run these miles and lift this weight. I'm like, yeah, that sounds awesome. And it doesn't happen to me. I don't know why, right? Well, why? why? Because I'm not doing anything with it. I'm not applying it to my life. I'm not putting it into practice. So learning to serve like Jesus today is not an exercise in what you do with your head. It's an exercise with what God chooses us to do with our hearts. Serving like Jesus is not what you and I do. It's who you are. It's who I am. This is so important for us to understand this morning. If we're going to understand what it means to serve like Jesus, we have to understand this foundational truth. When he came and he gave his disciples the instruction to do what he called them to do, he was not building their resume. He was not challenging them to be better versions of themselves. He was giving them a new identity. When God comes through his son, when we trust in Jesus Christ, just like we saw in the tank here, baptism, when we choose to follow Jesus Christ, he's not adding to our resume. He doesn't pull up our resume and say, well, you were born here, you, were, you, know, you had these many family members, you lived here, you did this schooling, and now you accepted me as Lord and Savior. That's good. No, he throws it out and he says, there's a new identity that I'm giving you. And your new identity is to follow me and to be like me, to walk like me, to love like me, to serve others like me. Service is not something we add to our life. It becomes who we are. Jesus did not come as a Lord who served others. He came as a servant king. Does that make sense? It's a difference There's a difference. He wasn't a king who knew how to serve. He came as a servant who was the king. He was a humble king, and he came to serve. So this morning, when we talk about serving like Jesus, that's my first challenge that I want you to really think about. If you're a follower of Christ, serving others and living a life of service are not events, and it's not something that you do. It is supposed to be who you are. How then is the question, how can we serve like Jesus? Two things I just want to mention to you this morning briefly, how we can serve like Jesus. Number one, serve confidently. Serve confidently. What do I mean by serving confidently? Well, it doesn't mean when you serve that you're confident that you're doing a good job. It means that you are clear that your mission on this earth is to serve others because Jesus showed you that he served others. Does that make sense? Serve confidently. Matthew 20, 28, Jesus told this to his disciples. He said, for even the Son of Man came not to be what? Served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here's why this is so important. From the very beginning, Jesus understood his mission was to do the work and the will of the Father God. 
From the very beginning, he understood everything that he was going to do was about submitting his will to the Father and doing as the Father asked and instructed. You can even go into the Garden of Gethsemane where he was praying before he was arrested. The scriptures say he sweated, he sweated drops of blood in anguish knowing what was about to happen. And his prayer was so honest and so real that he even said, Lord, take this cup from me. That was his way of saying, I do not want to do this. Who would willingly choose to submit themselves to a horrific way of death and torture? And he said, I don't want to do this. But then he said, but not my will. Yours be done. The writer of Hebrews says that because of the joy set before him, he endured the cross, speaking of Jesus, scorning its shame. What does that mean? It means the joy set before him was to do the will of the Father, was, if you will, to be who he was supposed to be in his mission to fulfill the mission of God. And he confidently did that. I need us to know this this morning. I need to be reminded of this each and every day. This is why I circle back to say, you know, some messages I go, hey, this would be greater for somebody else to speak. But for some reason, God said, no, this week is going to be about you doing it because a true follower of Christ is not someone who serves others. It's someone who understands that they are created to be a servant that they don't just serve others. You see, the, there is a difference. Do you understand what I'm trying to say with the difference? It doesn't just, it's not just added to who you are. It's supposed to become who you are. So when you hear people talk about loving God and loving others, it's not, well, now i got to learn to love other people. No, your mindset shifts and you recognize as you look at the world around you, your friends, your family, your spouses, your coworkers, the people you love and the people you don't. And we're going to get there in a few minutes. God calls us to love. He calls us to serve them. It is not an act. It is a shifting in our character, and it is a new identity that he has placed on us. Serve faithfully. I'm sorry, serve confidently. John 13, 15 through 17, he told them this. He said, I have given you an example to follow. What was the example? The foot washing was the example. And it wasn't just go do this one thing. It was a principle. Do as I have done you, he said. I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. And then he says, now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. He wasn't just saying, go wash people's feet. He did something that was the lowest of the lowest of the low that you could possibly do in that culture for that time and what they were doing at that meal. He washed the feet of those that were at the table. You think, well, why is that significant? Number one, feet are gross. Can I get an amen? That's right. Feet can, they can be gross. They don't have to be gross, but they can be gross. Okay? The last toenail, that's the nail that I ever trim most of the time, is underneath a sock before it's on my hands. I trim my fingernails a lot more frequently than I do my toenails. You probably don't need to know that information. But here's what I know. Some of you are saying, that's right. That's right. When you have children that go through their teenage years... One of the areas of their body that smells more than any other, especially young boys, are their feet. Am I right? Amen. See, we got it. This is spiritual, guys. Feet see the worst of the worst. They're covered in socks and shoes. 
They're in this little cocoon or hibernation of nastiness sometimes. Right? You're saying, this is gross. You're making me sick. That's the point. Imagine in a world, like Andy, our elder, said a couple weeks ago when he was preaching, he said, wow, those were big sandals to fill. When he talked about Solomon and David. Imagine walking everywhere in your life with sandals through dirt and muck and garbage and walking into someone's house and knowing that you had a responsibility to clean your feet. People that lived in homes would give a basin and water and and pitcher and they'd put that together and you would wash your feet. You didn't need to wash your whole body. If you took a bath that day, you were considered clean, but your feet were always filthy. Why? Because you walked everywhere and they were exposed. It was a very dirty part of people's body. Here's why it's so important. Jewish servants and slaves were not permitted to wash the feet of guests. The washing role was reserved for Gentile servants and slaves. So if you were a host, you could make a way for your guests to come in and wash their feet. But if someone was going to wash their feet, it would be a Gentile slave or servant. It would not be a Jewish person. Jesus, in this example, wasn't just a servant or a slave. He wasn't any of those things. He was a rabbi. He was a teacher. He was the host of the meal. And what did he do here? He gave them an example that challenged them to do something that would have been outside of their whole idea of thinking. After the meal, he got up and he washes his disciples' feet. And then he tells them, this is the example I'm giving you. Now in that culture, he was asking them to do something that the lowest of the lowest would have to do. And it wasn't about that specific thing. It was, remember, an identity shift. The way that you live your life as a follower of Christ is to be in the places that no one wants to be. Is to have the conversations with people that no one wants to have. It's to love the people that no one wants to live. Are you hearing what I'm saying? It's to surrender your preferences and surrender your hopes and surrender your desires. And this sounds so harsh. If you're saying, wow, that sounds like a miserable life. Look what he says in verse 17. Now that you know these things, God will what? Bless you for doing them. Do you know why? Because we were created to be like our heavenly father. We were created to be like Jesus. The presence of God lives in those who follow him. What he said was, you're not on this earth anymore to build your own kingdom. You're on this earth to build mine. You're not living in this world to build your own community and your own kingdom you're in this world, in this, in, this, in this life, to build a heavenly kingdom. You are ambassadors, as Paul says. I'm ambassadors. Christians are supposed to be the greatest servants. What does that look like? For each one of us, it looks like something slightly different, but the mindset is still there. Whatever we need to do, however it looks, whenever it has to be done, we are supposed to say we are a servant of others. Why? Because it's not just about doing kind things to other people. It's about pointing them to Jesus through our actions. Does that make sense? We live in a world right now where people, if we're not careful, I'm not talking about the church, I'm talking about the culture, where the message that we hear in the culture is look out for yourself. If you have anything left over after you build your kingdom and your empire, do some nice things and give to other people. And Jesus comes in and he flips the whole thing upside down. And he says, the way the kingdom of God is going to make 
progress in this world, the way the kingdom of God is going to change the world is by my followers recognizing they have not called, been called to lead from a place of power and position. They've been called to lead through a place of humility and servitude. And the greatest leaders in God's kingdom are the greatest servants. So when you serve, serve confidently. Know your mission and know that that's how God has called you and I to live. The second thing briefly is not just to serve confidently, it's to serve faithfully. Serve faithfully, and I want to briefly explain what I mean by this. Faithfully means regardless of your circumstances. People that serve faithfully have that DNA. They serve faithfully when things are good and when things aren't good with people you like and people you don't like. It's still an attitude of service. And I'm willing to bet you all would agree with me that it's very easy in this world right now to pull sides and to go in directions when people offend or they hurt, to put people in boxes and camps and go in the places you're comfortable and abandon the ones that you're not. But yet Jesus didn't model that. He didn't just love those that were lovable. He didn't just love those that loved him. He loved everyone. He served everyone faithfully. One of the coolest illustrations we see, and I know we can read this, but I'm also a visual person, so I like pictures. When you think of the Lord's Supper or the Last Supper, you might have this image in your mind. This is the illustration that was, that was painted by Leonardo da Vinci. Some of you know this, the Lord's Supper, right? This is familiar for some of you. You see the long table where they're all there and Jesus is in the middle. Beautiful form of art, absolutely beautiful, love it, completely inaccurate about what the Lord's Supper would have looked like. This is not the way the table would have looked. This is not the way they ate. This is not the way they had Passover meals. What looked more appropriate would be something like this. This is what the Lord's Supper table would look more like. It was called the triclinium, if you will, because there was three different sides to the table. And when they went to their upper room and they had a meal together, this was the only time during the year that the Jews would not just sit down and take a meal, but they would recline at the table was during the Passover meal. And when they would lean on each other, they would lean to the left. And they would lean and they would have a meal together. And you can see in the upper left there, there's someone that's leaning. We know enough from Scripture to know a couple of the places where some of the disciples were sitting at this table. And let me explain to you why this is significant. Because in a setup like this, on the left side, the second one in would be the host of the entire meal. And we can see that looks most like Jesus, right? He has the little head covering on. That's the host. To the right of him would be one of his closest trusted friends. The host of the meal would sit with one of the most trusted closest friends. We know based on this gospels, that was John. Because the Bible shows us that John was leaning upon the breast of Jesus. Some of you know that? He was leaning left into the breast of Jesus. So Jesus was sitting there, and to his right was one of his closest trusted friends. Here's where it gets crazy. To the left of the host is the most esteemed member of the guests. And most people believe that was Judas Iscariot because of what the Gospels show and how they talk to each other and how they dip their hands and the, the food that was in the bowl and the bread that was in the bowl. They believe John stood, sat to his right and Judas sat to his left. Why would God allow that one who would betray him to sit at the most pristine 
part of the, of the table. The one who was honored most would be the one that would betray him. Here's what gets even more interesting, I think is cool. According to the scriptures, you can see when Jesus said about the one who would betray him, that it says Peter's trying to get John's attention at the meal to find out what Jesus meant. But based on how that is, most people believe what that means is that Peter was sitting directly across from John because he was trying to get his attention, but everyone wasn't aware of what was going on. Why is that significant? Because the last person at the table in that position, all the way over there, was the servant of the entire group. That's the one that would get up. That's the one that would go get the food. That was the one who would be considered the servant or the slave of the entire group. So God puts, Jesus Christ puts his closest confidant to his right. The one to his left is the one who would betray him in the position that esteems him as the greatest at the table and the one who will lead his church as the greatest servant at the table. How amazing is that? Isn't that incredible? When you look at how this is set up and why this is so specific, I can imagine they came together and they looked at it and they thought, that's why it was so difficult for people, for people to say, the one of you is going to betray me. Why in the world would they ever have thought in a moment Judas would be the one to betray him when he was sitting at the table right next to Jesus in the most prestigious position of all of them? They couldn't understand what was going on and Peter's trying to get his attention. Why am I sharing all that with you? Because serving confidently is important. But serving faithfully means serving the way Jesus served others. He says in Luke chapter 6, verse 35, Love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting to be repaid. Then your reward from heaven will be very great, and you will be truly acting as children of the Most High. For he is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. He presents a challenge that's hard for us in our individual hearts to say, don't just love those that love you. Don't just serve those that bless you. Serve those that hate you. Serve those that could betray you. Serve those. You see where I'm going with this? Does it make you uncomfortable at all? It should if you're listening because this challenges the way we live as followers. That does not mean that we open ourselves up to just be abused by people. People can swing the pendulum and misinterpret what he's saying. I'm saying The definition of an enemy doesn't have to be the person that's invading our country with weapons and guns. An enemy could be someone that we harbor an offense against or harbors an offense against us. An enemy in a moment could be someone in the heat of a conversation or someone we're sitting next to in a church on Sunday morning. All Jesus is saying in the midst of this is don't choose to serve people sometimes. Make it your identity to live life as a servant. And I thought it's one of the most beautiful pictures of the Last Supper, that the Son of God would have his best friend leaning against him. And then to the left, he's still serving the one that he knows is going to betray him. Powerful, isn't it? We're not going to go there this morning, but when Peter wrote 1 Peter chapter 5, he even challenges us, this is 30 plus years later, that we're supposed to clothe ourselves with humility and kindness, and walk as a servant. Peter was a firecracker of a disciple. And yet 30 plus years later, he's still speaking to us about loving people with a heart of service. I want to leave this this morning as a worship team comes, and I want to read this scripture out of Philippians that gives us a beautiful picture of what I think is one of the greatest examples of the humble servant, Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't just give us a picture for us to consider 
about how Jesus loved us, but he gives us a picture to consider of how we should love others in this image of Jesus. Look what he says in Philippians 2, verse 3. He says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same, here it is, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Verse 7, instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a beautiful picture we have of not just a Lord, not just a servant, but a suffering servant who God elevated again back to his divine place as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This is the message of Christianity, folks. And whether you're familiar with this or not, whether the church has been something that you've gone to all of your life, we've had so many people over the years I have talked to where church has been a tradition that they've been to or a box that they've checked, or they heard it through their parents or their family, or they listened to a pastor or a priest, and that's how they determine their theology. And when they hear things like this, they go, this doesn't sound like the Jesus I ever heard before. Why is this different? Because Christianity and knowing Jesus was never about checking boxes and going to church services. It was never about adding something to our resume. It was about changing our identity so that we become followers of the Most High God and recognize that he gave his only son so that you and I, whoever believe in him, shall not perish but have eternal life. That's the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What it means is that relationship is available now to you and I, to God through his Holy Spirit and the work that was done on the cross. You can know God today in a real dynamic relationship You can walk in relationship with him, but as all of us would understand and agree, relationships take effort. Relationships take intentionality. This year, my wife and I will be married in October, 29 years. And I can promise you, I can promise you, I have spoken with her more than 52 times each one of those years. And yet sometimes in the world that we live in, people look at a relationship with God and they say, I checked the box on Easter or Christmas. I go to church. I hear a message. That's why, you know, religion doesn't do anything for me. You know what? That doesn't do anything for anybody. And if I was in a relationship with my wife and I showed up once or twice a year for 90 minutes, listened to her say some things and went went back to my life, I wouldn't have a relationship with her either. That's not what Jesus came for. He came so that you and I could experience abundant life. And that exists for you and I today as we choose to say to him, I make room. I make room in my schedule. I make room in my heart. I make room in my priorities. I make room so that you will come, you will hear, you will fill me, and I can serve others with the love that you've given to me, I can give to other people. 
Our worship team's going to sing this song this morning. And I just want to encourage you, if you want to sing with us, sing with us. If you want to sit, sit and pray. If you want to come to the altar during this time, just come and kneel before the Lord at the altar. There's no rules. There's no formula. We open the space to you to worship the Lord as they worship. Would you join us?